timely reminder uh, that uh, we serve the, the King whose kingdom will never end, uh, the only one with an eternal kingdom. And uh, what a comfort that is uh, right now. Well, uh, I don't usually have a handout for you guys, uh, but uh, judging by the how many slides I would have needed to put up uh, on the projector behind me and uh, how many, frantically you would have all needed to have taken notes. Uh, but uh, if uh, you don't have the handout, uh, we can uh, bring one to you if you raise your hand. Uh, but uh, I hope that you, you have that uh, with you there. And we're going to kind of continue uh, the series that I've uh, been teaching kind of on uh, the social justice revolution. But uh, as we kind of work our way uh, to that, the, the uh, Italian uh, city of Venice uh, is, a, is a very unique and, and fascinating city. Uh, the city spans a, a group of 118 small islands uh, that make up uh, kind of the, the Venetian uh, lagoon at the mouth of two rivers, the, the Po and the Piave. Uh, and that uh, the islands are famously separated by canals. So if you, you go through the you don't go through the streets of Venice, you, you row on a boat through the canals of Venice. Uh, and uh, the city is linked by over 400 uh, bridges. Uh, and uh, because it's it's built on a lagoon, uh, the Venetian uh, architects, those who were building a city there, uh, they had to develop a a way to, to build upon sand and mud. Uh, and so what they did is they developed this technique where they would take these uh, large wooden poles that are about eight feet long uh, and about 10 inches in diameter, uh, and they would drive these poles into uh, the mud uh, deep down. And then uh, once these poles were embedded into the mud, they would take uh, other pieces of wood planks uh, and set them horizontally on top of uh, these vertical poles. And then they would put uh, a couple layers of stone. And then after that foundation had been laid, then they would they would start to put together uh, or build whatever building they were going to put on top of that. Uh, And uh, most of the original foundations are are still there today, about 600 years after they were originally built. And what's amazing is these wooden poles, you would think that they would deteriorate over time. But because uh, they're not exposed to the air, they're just embedded in this mud, uh, they don't deteriorate. Uh, But uh, there are some some other issues uh, that the city of Venice has uh, because uh, what is taking place is that gradually uh, the city is sinking down into the mud uh, and uh, it is descending at a rate of about two millimeters uh, per year. And you may say, well, that's not that big of a deal, right? Two millimeters. Well, think about over the span of a century. That's 20 centimeters. Okay, Uh, and so when when a city continues to to sink further and further down, problems arise. And there have been uh, recently uh, a lot of significant issues in past years uh, in the city of Venice because of significant flooding, uh, both from uh, the rivers that that flow to the sea there. And because there are occasionally really high tides where the Adriatic Sea uh, will will rise up. And uh, just a few years ago, there was about six feet of water throughout the whole city. Uh, and so you have to be prepared for such things uh, in those times of year. But you can imagine what it would be like to live there. Right? If, you're, if your city is sinking, what would you want to do? You'd probably want to look for real estate elsewhere. Right? Uh, and so uh, the city of Venice is actually uh, decreasing quite rapidly. 
Uh, and it is uh, estimated that at some point in the future, uh, it will probably have to be evacuated completely. Uh, and it will probably still remain just as a, a tourist destination, but nobody will probably live there. They'll go in during the day and then they'll leave uh, each and every uh, evening. And, and all of that because they decided to build upon sand and mud. Even though they did it very wisely uh, and cleverly, uh, it was fascinating to read about how did they build that But ultimately, because they have built upon mud and sand, that city is going to need to be abandoned. Uh, And and the city of Venice itself shows us the importance of having a solid foundation, uh, of having a foundation that is not going to to sink uh, and shift over time. And even more important than than building a city on a solid foundation is, is building our lives, our individual understanding of the world around us upon truth, upon truth that is going to last. And, and I've spoken many, many times, and we're going to talk about it again this morning because it's so important, about the concept of our worldview, about the how we evaluate and interpret everything around us. Uh, And we are doing this constantly, whether we realize it or not. And uh, I can't speak uh, enough about how significant this concept is of understanding how we think about the world. Uh, One author, Philip E. Johnson, has this to say about the importance uh, of our worldview. He says it would be an understatement to say that worldview is an important topic. He said, I would rather say that understanding how worldviews are formed and how they guide or confine our thought is the essential step toward understanding everything else. Understanding worldview is a bit like trying to see the lens of one's own eye. We do not ordinarily see our own worldview, but we see everything else by looking through it. Put simply, our worldview is the window by which we view the world and decide, often subconsciously, what is real and important and what is unreal and unimportant. So we all have a way of uh, looking at what is taking place in the world, uh, interpreting it, uh, and coming to certain conclusions about what we should do, how we should live, what is uh, urgent and important, and what is uh, something that can be dismissed. Uh, and I would say that the, the ability uh, to, to dissect and examine our worldview is, is worth more than a superpower in today's world. Okay? To, to be able to, to think critically is of the utmost importance, because as we talked in the past, there is more information coming at us each and every day than any other previous generation has ever had to deal with. Uh, I think it's been said that one edition of a Sunday New York Times contains more information than the average person ever would have come across in the 15th century. Think about that. One newspaper. You're like, wait, what's a newspaper? Uh, Not so long ago. Uh, But if that's the case of the newspaper, think about what you hold in your hand on your phone. There's nothing that you can't look up and immediately be able to, to find out. There's no end to what you can read uh, and watch and and all of these uh, things. So we have this urgent, urgent need to think about how we view the world. And, And also not just about how we view the world, but understanding that each and every worldview has wooden poles holding up everything else. 
Just like in the city of Venice, those wooden poles that are completely unseen. You don't just walk through the city and, and know that they're there. But every single worldview has a support system that, that holds up the views and the ideas of that uh, particular philosophy, that ideology, that religion. It's supported by something. And this is known as uh, presuppositions. The idea of uh, presupposing something. And our presuppositions uh, are those beliefs that we hold to before everything else. They are the, the fundamental beliefs uh, that lead us to interpret uh, everything else uh, in our world around us. So some examples, examples of uh, presuppositions in our Christian worldview. We, we believe that God exists. We, we presuppose that. If we land somewhere else on that, we're going to, to end up in a completely different direction. If we presuppose from the very beginning that God does not exist, where are we going to end up? Yeah, suddenly we look at the Bible and if God doesn't exist, then this isn't his word. If God doesn't exist, then I don't have to answer to anyone. Uh, if God doesn't exist, really nothing matters too much in life at all. Again, so understanding our presuppositions is of the utmost importance because one little belief sets us on a trajectory. Uh, and that's what I want to look at this morning. In, in previous weeks in this series on the social justice revolution, we, we, we first began of how do we even engage in conversations? Uh, again, that may have been the most important message in the series because we have to understand uh, that we are still called to, to love and care for those who disagree with us. That we are still called and commanded uh, to interact with others uh, in uh, a way that honors and glorifies the God that we know exists. Uh, and so we're going to interact with ideas and, and thoughts. We're not going to attack people. Uh, second message uh, in this series uh, addressed the, the concept of what is true justice look like? Now, what does the Bible have to say about justice? And then last week uh, we looked at uh, what is, how has re- justice been redefined? It's been changed and and really turned into something that it really uh, was never intended to be and something fundamentally opposite from justice. But uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to examine the foundations of this social justice movement. Okay, well, what is this all uh, about and where do these presuppositions, where do the, uh, the, the foundational beliefs of this movement, where do they come from and then where do they lead? Because, again, the, the presuppositions are going to determine so much else. So well, what I want to look at this morning is why is the, the social justice movement uh, sinking sand? Why is it something that we should not build upon? Even if it seems stable now, which if we really look at it, it, it doesn't look that way. Uh, but why is it unworthy of being built upon? Uh, and, and why should it not be a part uh, of our Christian worldview? And I'll, I'm going to give you three reasons here. Number one, because of its parentage. Secondly, number two, because of its presuppositions. And then thirdly, because of its progeny, which is another word for uh, for its children. What is it brought forth? But as we look at these three uh, worldviews uh, that we'll begin with, or the three reasons we should reject the social justice movement as a, a worldview. Uh, the first one is that the the parentage of ideological social justice. And again, what I've uh, sought to clarify in, in the past weeks is that when, I, when I'm speaking about uh, the social justice movement, I'm speaking about ideas, uh, and ultimately, do we reject and toss out 
the fact that we are to be concerned about justice. No, we are still concerned about living justly and righteously uh, before God and loving our neighbor. But uh, this idea of social justice is so much more. Uh, and so this, uh, this worldview uh, did not pop out of a vacuum. It didn't just, uh, it wasn't beamed down from aliens. Uh, it, it came to us uh, with parents. Uh, it, it came down to us uh, from other worldviews and other ideas uh, of human philosophy. And I would, uh, I guess, draw your attention back to a verse that I, I pointed you to last week. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And a verse with, with far-reaching implications and a significant warning. Where the Apostle Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Uh, what Paul is saying is we are all called to be philosophers as Christians. You ever think of yourself that way? We are philosophers because we think and live according to Christ. And so we have to make a decision. Whatever idea, whatever concept comes our way, is this according to Christ or is it not? And if it's not... But we need to see and understand that there is a danger that accompanies it. He says, that, see to it that no one takes you captive. That's what false ideas can do. They, ca- they capture and enslave. That's what we're going to see today. So we want to live according to Christ. So we look at the, the parentage of the ideological social justice, and this is what we see. You have a, uh, on your hand out there uh, a chart. Uh, and uh, within that, that top chart, uh, I've outlined what what Marxism is. Okay? And on your chart there, Marxism comes from uh, two philosophers, Karl Marx uh, and Friedrich Engels. They're philosophers and they're economists. Uh, and I know I'm sure Engels left, feels left out right now because it's only known as Marxism. But uh, they, they famously wrote uh, uh, not just the Communist Manifesto, but a number of works together that speak about and discuss uh, economics uh, and, and the world uh, as it exists. Uh, and the, what they outline is that the, the world consists of a battle between good and evil. You're like, okay, well, a lot of worldviews say that. Well, how they define who is good and who is evil, they said that uh, the society and the world exists as a class struggle. Now, there's a struggle between those who are good and the, they are the oppressed uh, and they are the, the working class. Uh, as the, it was in, uh, in Russia during that time, uh, they are known as the proletariat. And uh, the, they are being oppressed by uh, certain systems and structures in their society. Uh, that was known as uh, capitalism. So they spoke against this, this system and this structure and said this is what's oppressing the working class people. The, the capitalism uh, and those who were the oppressors were those who uh, were in control of that system. Uh, known as the, the, the wealthy landowners, the, the capitalists, uh, known as the, the bourgeoisie at that point in time. Uh, and uh, during the time of their writing in the middle of the, the 19th century, there was significant uh, differences between uh, those uh, who were working in the Russian factories and on Russian farms and, and those who owned them. 
Uh, there was a significant uh, level of uh, inequality, and so they're working to, to address poverty in the land, but what they're going to ultimately end upon is uh, the solution in that worldview is that the, the workers needed to seize control. Uh, that they needed to to overthrow those in power and they needed to seize uh, the means of production. And if the workers seized that, then everything could be shared and everything would be equal. Uh, and so that's the, the idea behind uh, Marxism. And then about a hundred years later uh, came another system of thought that's going to be really important. It's going to p- kind of play into this whole uh, movement. That's known as uh, postmodernism. I mean, just by, by curiosity, how many of you have ever heard that term, postmodernism? Okay. Uh, and, and as you probably know, if I were to say, well, what is postmodernism? You probably say, I can't give you a clear answer. Right? It, it, it's notoriously hard to define, and that's intentional, uh, because postmodernism uh, changed how we view the world, uh, and ultimately, postmodernism questions everything because as we're seeing that little chart uh, and and that chart comes from a a book that I've mentioned in the past uh, that I highly recommend and it's footnoted there uh, in in your notes uh, from Scott David Allen Uh, and he kind of outlines there's been three really big changes in how humans view the world especially in in Western society that for for most of human uh, history in Western society uh, we have viewed truth uh, as uh, or reality as being both spiritual and material, uh, and the ultimate authority uh, behind reality has been God. Well, all of that changed uh, in the middle of the 17th century, uh, and uh, in the middle of the Enlightenment, and there was a uh, an elevation of human reason above God. They say, "Hey, let's let's doubt." Remember, I said that one single presupposition that God exists. Well, what if we didn't have that presupposition? It's like you're playing Jenga and you take out that one little block and everything else collapses. Well, that's what happened in the Enlightenment. They said, well, what if we take out this one block, this one presupposition that God exists? And everything came tumbling down. The world changed because they replaced the authority of God with the authority of man. And human reason was elevated. And a part of the, how in elevating human reason, what they said is that there was no spiritual. There was only uh, the material. Uh, that uh, the, the, the overarching view of the world around us uh, is just the physical and natural world. And that's what, in, in the middle of all of this other thinking, is when uh, Darwinism uh, rose up, uh, the theory of evolution that sought to explain all of those things. And as I've said in the past, the culminating uh, reality of that materialistic, naturalistic worldview and Darwinism was World War II, uh, where you have uh, the the Japanese and the the Germans uh, saying, we are superior and we are going to to run this show. Uh, And ultimately, uh, that came after the after World War II ended uh, and the world was kind of recovering in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, It was a a new way of thinking. So maybe truth is not just found in the material things. And maybe science shouldn't govern everything. So kind of swinging the opposite way, uh, the philosophers began to say, well, truth is found not in science, but it's in each and every one of us. 
uh, that, that truth is now determined and defined in the human mind. Uh, and that's what postmodernism is all about. Uh, that truth is uh, individual, that it is uh, really uh, unknowable. That, that absolute truth uh, doesn't exist, which if you think about it, saying truth doesn't exist is in and of itself an absolute statement about truth. Because how do you know that truth doesn't exist? You have to know every single truth to say truth doesn't exist. So it, it's self-refuting, but and there's a lot more to it, but I don't want to get lost in all of these philosophical things. Uh, but there's a radical skepticism associated with postmodernism where there was a, a skepticism in uh, modern times under the Enlightenment, but a radical skepticism of we can't really know anything under the system of postmodernism. And then, uh, because it's all about uh, knowledge and, and ideas, and it, it, because there's no absolute truth, they began to study, well, how does the way that we think and discuss things, known as narratives, how does that influence uh, power? Uh, and this is where Marxism creeps back in. Uh, of now uh, they're saying that the, the world around us consists of uh, systems of power uh, and oppression. Uh, and so, uh, but they've added to it. So postmodernism kind of mixed in with uh, Marxism and, and then also uh, merged into two other things, which I didn't have time to to discuss because, again, that would, this would be a really long series. Uh, but two other things uh, known as critical race theory uh, and intersectionality. And we're going to talk about those presuppositions uh, in another one of our points. But uh, all of this flowed into develop uh, or repeat uh, the Marxism of the past. And as you see on that second chart there, uh, in the ideological social justice, or, or could also it's been referred to as neo or new Marxism or cultural Marxism. And, and what was added uh, onto the categories of those who were oppressed and being pushed down uh, were racial and ethnic minorities, uh, women, uh, and then uh, you can say sexual minorities of those who uh, have a uh, or who are choosing to identify themselves by the sum total of their sexual feelings. They're saying, hey, I identify as this, and now I'm being oppressed as a result of it. So they uh, are uh, oppressed victims, uh, and in addition to the, the, the oppressive system and structure of capitalism, you added on to that, that that's what critical race theory contributed, that, uh, that the, the notion and the idea of race is just a social construct, and it was created in order to oppress uh, racial minorities and specifically uh, Africans who were being traded as slaves at that point in time uh, when that uh, was coming about. Uh, then additionally was added on to that of the, the patriarchy, you know, that men uh, have pushed down and oppressed women uh, and, uh, and then ultimately the Judeo-Christian morality uh, or it's known as heteronormativity. So the idea of uh, thinking that heterosexuality is the normal uh, way of things as it has been throughout all of human history. Uh, now that has a name of heteronormativity. Uh, and that is an, seen as an oppressive system. Uh, and so those systems uh, also have oppressors who take advantage uh, of those systems. Uh, and again, uh, if... Uh, just within that, those who utilize uh, white 
privilege and white supremacy are uh, those who are uh, ethnically or white uh, of skin. Uh, those who oppress women are men, and those who uh, oppress uh, sexual minorities are is anybody, the Orthodox Christians, Jews, or anyone else who t- holds to a traditional view of marriage and sexuality. So this whole worldview and system is saying uh, th- this is the new categories of uh, oppression and oppressor. Uh, and, and all of this, again, is just repeating an old worldview. It's going back and building upon uh, the Marxism of the 19th century. Okay? Uh, and uh, w- what's amazing is we can just look and see what communism and what Marxism brought forth. It was an interesting book in, in 1994. It was entitled uh, The Death by Government. And the author was R.J. Rummel. Uh, and he looked at every communist uh, regime from 1900 to 1987, because he was writing in 1994. He said, let me look at uh, the results of communism. Uh, And what he found in 1994 was that there were an estimated 110 million people who were put to death under communist regimes in 87 years. Think about that. And then in 2005... When additional information came out uh, regarding the, the Chinese Revolution under Mao Zedong, it was that number increased to 148 million estimated killed in communist regimes from 1900 to 1999. And there was a, a famine during the, the Chinese Revolution uh, that killed an estimated 38 million people. about that. So as we look at where is this worldview coming from? Well, what came to mind is Luke chapter 6 verses 43 and 44. Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a, a bramble bush. Part of understanding worldviews is just doing something really, really basic and just saying, how's that working out for you? What's the, the fruit of this? And, and what's amazing is there are so many people who are seeking to flee formerly communist states or communist states, to come here to America. And then right now America is in the process of embracing all of these ideas. But this is the, the ideological tree that the social justice movement sprouts out of. And so, so what else should we expect from this worldview? If this is the, the tree that this is branching out from, what else should we expect but death? Yet these ideas have, have been repackaged and, and rebranded and they're, they're being widely accepted in our community, in our culture right now, and, and even in the church. Again, I'd point, point back to Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. When we see that everything associated with a particular set of views is completely 
and thoroughly unbiblical. It needs to sound the alarms. And if this is the the ideological tree that's a social justice movement, uh, it would also be worthwhile to say, okay, if this is the tree, let's look at the roots. What is it that gives this tree life? I want to lead to the the, the second uh, thing I want to look at this morning. We saw the, the, the parentage of ideological social justice. And now let's look at the, the presuppositions of ideological social justice. And you have that on your, your, your handout there. Again, it's a little bit too much to, to take notes, but I want to I equip you and I want to help you to, to learn how to think biblically and how to think in worldview terms. Uh, so as you look at that chart along the left-hand side, uh, there, are, there are big topics Big worldview realities that any time a discussion of any one of those things comes up, we need to have a little uh, bell that, that chimes in our heads that says this is much bigger than just this little topic. This has to do with how I see and interpret everything about the world around me. So that the worldview aspects of reality, knowledge, ultimate authority human origin, human identity, human suffering, salvation, morality, meaning, and destiny. All of those are worldview topics. So I want to, want to sprint through this uh, with you. Uh, but ultimately, I want to look at what is it that, that this movement of ideological social justice, what do they say about each one of these worldview areas? And then also, what does Scripture say? You see that there in the column. So regarding reality, how is reality defined? Again, in ideological social justice, owing to postmodernism, the human mind is what defines reality. That's your truth. It's not my truth. Right? All of you, we see see and hear this constantly. Most notably, in 2016, after President Trump was elected, what was the famous phrase that everybody was saying? Or most, many people not my president, right? You're like, well, I, I understand what you're saying, but he's still actually the president. If you're a U.S. citizen, he is your, your president. But I, but I understand that. But uh, the reality being defined in the human mind contrasts to what, what do we see in Scripture? What, what does the Bible presuppose? Genesis 1.1. We don't have any arguments for the existence of God. What are we told? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. God's existence is a presupposition. And then he says, okay, God, this almighty, infinite being created the heavens and the earth and everything in them and all that they contain. That the God of Scripture is the definer of reality. That's what we see in the biblical worldview. We don't get to determine reality. He does. Secondly, and this is uh, really, really important, the, the concept of knowledge. How do we know what is true? I'm going to give you a fancy word here. Uh, the study of where we get knowledge uh, and what is knowable is called epistemology. Okay? It's really important in our culture right now because in ideological social justice, the notion of objective truth, reason, logic, and evidence, uh, arguments, are, all of that is discredited. And so what they say is those are tools of oppression. Uh, Your reason and your logic, uh, we don't need them because that's actually how you have kept and oppressed people down uh, in your privilege. 
And so we gain knowledge in this, in that worldview. Uh, the knowledge of truth is learned from victims who, based upon their lived experience of oppression, have greater insight than oppressors. Okay? And this is known as standpoint epistemology. So you can't tell me what the world is like because you're an oppressor and I'm oppressed. So the, the ultimate uh, knowledge is found from uh, those who are victims in this worldview. Uh, but contrast to where do we get knowledge in the biblical worldview? We get it from uh, the God of Scripture, the one who has revealed himself in his word, uh, in his world in general revelation, and then who has given us uh, a conscience and the, written the, the works of the law on our heart. We see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. And God has given us the ability to think and, and reason. And we, he has commanded us uh, to think rationally uh, and to evaluate things. Uh, and to weigh evidence and, and so much more. So knowledge comes from uh, reason and logic and discussion uh, and weighing evidence in a biblical worldview. Ultimately, uh, connected with knowledge is the idea of authority. In, in the ideological social justice worldview, uh, it's the victims who are the final authority. Uh, that we can't question any of the claims that they make and, and what they say. Their truth trumps our truth, so to speak. Uh, and their lived experience must be believed and embraced without question. But again, what's the ultimate authority in the biblical worldview? God, His Word, who, what He has said to us and revealed to us as the one who defines reality. Uh, number four there, the fourth uh, row, origin. Where do we come from? And, and not everybody in uh, the social justice movement is uh, an evolutionist per se, uh, but the, the, ultimately their, their presuppositions and everything that they're going to be uh, communicating is going to reveal that they don't believe in a transcendent God. They believe uh, that we are just merely creatures uh, who have evolved from nothing over time. Uh, but the scriptures say that we are created uh, in God's image on the sixth day. The identity, who we are. Are we evolved creatures? Uh, or are we human beings uh, in God's image, having both a material and an immaterial body? And because we are created in God's image, every single one of us has intrinsic value. Uh, and every single person is to be treated with dignity and worth. Okay, what about suffering? Uh, ideological social justice says that the, the problem of humanity... Uh, is oppression. That white heteronormative males have established and maintained power uh, and they're using that power to, to oppress and, and subjugate everybody else. But what does Scripture say? What, what's the main problem in humanity? Sin. Rebellion. We have rebelled against the Holy God who has created us, who's given us life and breath and everything, and our rebellion breaks our relationship with Him and it impacts our relationship with every other person. Now we live in a world cursed by sin. So what's the solution to humanity's problem? Well, uh, in, in the, the social justice worldview, the only solution is a complete overhaul. It's pushing the, the reset button. Because they're going to say that uh, the, the world is and fundamentally rotten to its core. That these oppressive power structures and systems and institutions, they need to be deconstructed. They need to be torn apart. Ultimately, in the biblical worldview, the solution is not rip everything down. The solution is look to Christ. 
Turn to Him in faith. Uh, and all who, who look to Him in faith, everyone who trusts and believes in His uh, birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, uh, we are reconciled with the Holy God that we have rebelled against. Uh, and then we are given the power and the ability to reconcile with others. How can we be saved? It's interesting, in, in the social justice movement, there's really two categories of people. Okay? Now, there are those who are victims, those who are the oppressed, and there's no need for them to be saved. Like there, There's no need for salvation for them because they haven't done anything wrong. They are only oppressed. But those who are uh, the oppressors, they are guilty and can never be fully pardoned. There's no hope of forgiveness. You can never do enough uh, as if you are one of those oppressors. And I, and I should have included in your notes, uh, if, you, if you go home and, and search intersectionality diagram, okay, go, go home and, and search for that. Uh, and uh, what you'll see is there's these, the, these lines of uh, oppression. And if you're on one, uh, if you're a male uh, or a female. So if you're, if you're on the, the top of the, the diagram, uh, you are automatically an oppressor at any point in time. And if you're on the bottom, you are automatically a victim. Uh, and so we have various levels of oppression. Uh, and uh, sometimes we're oppressors and oppressed at the same time, depending on things. But uh, look at that and you begin to see that our identity in the social justice movement is bound up where those lines meet. Uh, if you're uh, a, an able-bodied, white, uh, heterosexual male, like you are the ultimate oppressor. Uh, but if you are uh, a racial minority, if you are uh, a woman, if you're uh, a child, or uh, if you're not able-bodied differently, there's all of these vast things, and your identity is that. But even within that, there's no, of our identity, there's no exceptions to that. Uh, the, the individual and the universal gets swallowed up, and you're only who, what your group is. No exceptions. Ultimately, jumping back in, looking at morality, what is our, our primary moral duty? Well, in the social justice movement, it's to stand in solidarity with, protect, and defend the oppressed. The women, people of color, sexual minorities. But as, as we've talked about uh, the last few weeks, biblical justice, true justice, is living rightly with God and our neighbor. The Bible says our, our morality of how we're to live is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we are carrying out justice, which we all do, again, communitive justice is living rightly with God and neighbor. And distributive justice is when we dispense or distribute justice as an authority, we do it righteously and impartially. Closely connected with morality is meaning. How do we find meaning in life? Well, in the social justice movement, you're, you're constantly trying to deconstruct and take things apart. All of these systems of oppression, your life mission is to take all of these apart and to, in order to pursue and build a more equitable society. But in the Christian worldview, we strive to glorify God in everything that we do. Again, we're to love God and our neighbor faithfully for His glory. And then, ultimately, destiny. Well, why is destiny important? Because if you do not believe in a final judgment, 
If you don't believe in, in God and you're looking around uh, at the, the, the world and you're seeing all of this injustice and you don't think it's ever going to be addressed, then you're, you're saying, hey, I have to address this right here and right now. I have to take vengeance and justice into my own hands to accomplish it. But in the Christian worldview, we don't have to right every wrong right here and right now. Who are we commanded to leave that to? To God. Vengeance belongs to Him, and we believe in a final, perfect judgment on the last day. All of this is, is so important, and I know that was a ton of information coming at you. Right? Drinking from a fire hose a little bit this morning. So. But uh, I'll give you a little illustration of this. Uh, in, in, a, in a well-known book, uh, White Fragility, the, the author, uh, Robin D'Angelo, she, she's a, a racial sensitivity trainer. So she goes into workplaces and talks about uh, racial issues. Uh, and, and in her book, she repeatedly makes this point. She would say, we must continue to ask how our racism manifests, not if. Okay? So she doesn't want us to ask if this is true. She just says, how is it true? And it seems like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Like, it's a, it's a, a subtle shift there. But uh, it is of the utmost importance uh, because it's a, it's a worldview assumption. If she can get anybody to assume as she assumes, where are we going to end up? Exactly where she is. This is the same uh, kind of deceptive trick that college professors used to play on incoming freshmen who were Christians. They say, oh, you know what? Let's just assume a position of neutrality. Let's just assume God doesn't exist. And just reason uh, and write and discuss things here in class as if he doesn't exist. Well, if, if you tell the student to begin to think and reason and live that way, what's going to happen? Again, that's that one little piece in the, if Jenga where if you take it out, everything else falls. If, if you adopt the presupposition of the social justice movement that... Uh, but, Racism is everywhere. It's inescapable. Uh, and really only one group of people is guilty of racism. If you adopt that presupposition, everything else falls into place. You're immediately labeled and accused and, and so many other things. So we have to, to begin to look for these. What are these underlying beliefs? And at the end of the book, she actually lists out and she says, uh, if you want to address and grow, just start to think along these assumptions. And she gives this whole long list of assumptions. Basically, just adopt everything, all of these, and you'll begin to grow. And, and reading, reading the, the long list, again, it didn't have time, edited for time. But, but it's remarkable. If she's, she's just saying that. Begin to think this way. And, and again, we have to guard our hearts and minds. But we have to begin to say, that's a worldview assumption. If I begin to think like that, I'm going to end up where they are. We have to begin to see that. It's a big difference of if something is true versus how is it true of you. It speeds past the acceptance and the evaluation of is this actually true. We have to, to look and, and be on guard against this. We must reject the presuppositions of any other worldview. It, we can't incorporate in other presuppositions because ultimately those presuppositions uh, will undermine uh, the Christian presuppositions. 
Uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, uh, when Jesus out- outlines uh, the, the responses to him and his message, you either build on the rock or you build on the sand. But there was no hybrid, right? What would happen if you try and do a hybrid? It still collapses because anything built on the sand is going to fall apart. And then you're left with half a house. And that's not going to survive a storm. Ultimately, we have to see and begin to think along these lines, right? So we've seen the, the, the parentage of ideological social justice. We've seen the presuppositions of ideological social justice. And then what is it bringing forth? That's why we look at this, this third Thing of note of the progeny of ideological social justice. What what is being brought forth in our world right now, based upon this new worldview? I love what what Jesus says in Luke chapter seven verse thirty five. Says something. Uh, it's a very brief and short statement, but it's powerful and profound. He says, "Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Wisdom is justified by all her children. What does that mean? Well, when the the children grow up, you see how they were raised, and you see the wisdom or the foolishness of the parent, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. And so again, we can just look and see what is it that, that the social justice movement is bringing into our world and our culture right now. I'm going to run through these really quickly, but say this. It's bringing racism and division into our world. And it's bringing it in because it presupposes racism and then it finds it everywhere. And it attributes racism as the source of every problem. So it's kind of that saying of when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You shouldn't want to go around patting stuff. If you presume racism in everywhere and it's the cause of every problem, what are you going to find? You're going to find racism everywhere. But also along that, that presupposition, uh, it immediately categorizes people and creates division. Because it, what it's saying is that there's a whole group and body of people identified by the color of their skin, and they are, by their by presuppositions of this worldview, they are racist. And there's a whole other groups of people that are, can never be racist. And, and so just it creates uh, division. We've seen in previous weeks, true justice is uh, colorblind. That is, it's impartial. We don't look and evaluate, uh, judge people based upon the color of their skin. But in this worldview, even if you said, oh, I'm colorblind, though it's, what's being said is that you are racist, that you're refusing to acknowledge uh, your racism so much more. It brings racism. It brings division. It brings anger and bitterness. Hey, if you're divided up into the, the categories here, uh, you are either said that you are uh, in, an oppressed victim and you start to say, oh, yeah, I feel oppressed. And so if you're constantly told that you're oppressed, how are you going to feel? If you're constantly told you're being oppressed and that person over there is oppressing you. What feeling is that going to create inside of you? Anger, animosity, bitterness. Immediately having those categories sets everything on edge. And ultimately, as I said, there's no forgiveness. And really, the Bible and biblical Christianity is the only worldview that proclaims forgiveness. 
worldview also produces villains and victims. And if you're in either of the categories, as I've mentioned before, there is no salvation. Because if you're a victim, you don't need salvation. And if a villain, there's nothing you can do to get out of that category. That's been forced upon you. And it removes salvation from both. Because if you are a victim, then you're not responsible for anything. Everything else has been placed upon you. What this also brings is is broken families. One of the... uh, Well... Back in uh, at the end of June, I was uh, watching something on on ESPN. There was a little video snippet. They had these two professional football players on, and they were they were discussing uh, what the NBA was thinking about doing uh, for the NBA season that was going to resume in in July. And they, you know the question was asked: Should the, should the NBA uh, you know do all of this uh, Black Lives Matter uh, advertising and advocating on the court and on the jerseys of everything? Uh, and it was, it was really interesting. So I'm like, oh, this is a, a great question. And one of the football players, his name is Marcellus Wiley, uh, and he's no longer, no longer playing, but he said, you know, I don't think they should do that. Uh, and, and he's an African-American. He says, I'm, I, I'm, I think there's things that need to be addressed in our nation. Uh, but but I've, been, I've been battling this. You know, he, he said, I'm, I was born in 1974. Like, I've been battling this much longer than Black Lives Matter has. And he's like, and you know what? And I went online and I looked at, I did my research on th- this organization. He's like, I don't think most people understand what this organization is about. Uh, and he's like, I, I can't get behind them as an organization because part of their mission statement, and it's, it's been taken down now. They used to have a page on their website that said, What We Believe. Uh, and this is a portion of what it says. This is what they were standing for. He's like, it said, We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So the idea is one of those systems of oppression is marriage. And Marcellus Wiley is like, first and foremost, I'm a husband and I'm a father. And I've seen the carnage that comes from broken families. And all of the, the research and evidence points to this is devastating. And so he's like, I can't get behind this. And you need to leave room for people to disagree with this. Because there's so much more to it. And so it's amazing that that was on ESPN. The things that you find, right? And so this, that's one of the things that, that that's one of the, the aims of this. To deconstruct, to take apart the nuclear family. Because if you take apart the nuclear family, who gets to raise children? The state. And they get to influence and, and teach what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable. So much. Ultimately, but also, as I said, the, the only acceptable solution is, uh, is vengeance and, and revolution. But what, what's being called for now uh, is, is not a recalibration, but a complete overhaul of the system. And it's fundamentally different from anything and everything that has come before it. And, and, and so we have, to, we have to be concerned and we, we have to understand what is taking place. 
We need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, and I know there was, this was a, a lot of information coming at you uh, today. But I, I want to equip you to be able to have conversations. To be able to, to say, you know what? Uh, I think that we do need to address injustice, but I can't agree with this other belief that you have. I don't think the answer is to, uh, to throw a grenade into the, the family. <laughs> I don't think we need to deconstruct the family. I think we need to strengthen families. And here's why. We need to be able to have conversations about these topics uh, in a way that, that glorifies God and honors Christ and speaks truth into the world around us. And ultimately, we can't have any part uh, of, a, of a worldview that is so deeply rooted in human philosophy. And I, again, I hope that, that came across clearly this morning of looking they're thoroughly unbiblical presuppositions and encourage you to begin to think along those lines. What are my presuppositions? Am I allowing Scripture to inform everything uh, that I'm believing, everything that I'm teaching my kids, everything that I'm saying to friends, neighbors, co-workers? Scripture has to be the foundation. Even as we, as we speak about these things, and I've, uh, I've said it in the past, we have to be careful how we speak about them. I know you, if you have your Bibles, turn, turn with me briefly to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Down, wind down with this. Give me at verse 23. Paul says to Timothy, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Our goal is not to quarrel, uh, but this also is not a, a foolish controversy. controversy. This, this is what is uh, completely everywhere in our culture, and it's seeping into the church. But Paul continues, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Again, what does is, what is the devil use to capture thoughts, ideas, systems, philosophy? So, so in one sense... Those who are in the social justice movement, as, as they speak of oppressive systems, they're right. They just haven't identified the right system. Very much an oppressive system. And it's the lies that they are proclaiming at this point in time. I, I pray that we would not be captured. And I pray that we would be instruments used of God to reason to pray and to speak the truth in love to others who have been caught up in this ideology and worldview. Amen.